good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. We have arrived at in many ways, what is the end of the book of Romans? We get this kind of ending benediction in verse 33, and we get uh, really the end of what he's communicating in all of chapter 16. For the most part, there's a, a few instructions and things, but a, a lot of chapter 16 is, is greetings that Paul is giving to his brothers and to his sisters in Rome, and he's asking them to, to relay the messages to those brothers and sisters and so in, in chapter 15 here at the end, we get this, the, really the end of, of all that Paul has written to the, the church at Rome. And uh, if you have been here for any uh, amount of time, uh, it's no secret that Sarah is a great help to me in my pastoral ministry, um, but especially in my talking through uh, texts that I get for preaching. And this week we were sitting on the couch and Sarah said, How's your sermon going? And it was like Tuesday or Wednesday. And I looked back at her and I said, I just don't know what to say. And she, was, she said, well, why? And I, I, said, I said, this passage in Romans is, is such a, a different passage than one that we've had in any other part of Romans. And I, and I, I kind of think in pictures and I said, it's, it's like, if, if you can imagine, like it's like me sitting here on the couch while you are on the phone with your mom or your sister, and you're just telling her the plans that you have, the plans that, that you're going to do in the next week or the next two weeks or what's going to happen this weekend. And it's like we're just kind of like I'm, like I'm party to this conversation between two people who love one another and two people who are, who are, are one person who's making plans and, and communicating that to the other person. And as I was thinking about that, I thought about that as a difficulty in our text this morning, but I really do think that as, as, we, as we look at our text this morning, what we'll see is that that is the, the beauty of this text. The beauty of this text is that we have arrived at a moment in the, in the book of Romans where Paul can, cannot be any more clear that this book is a, is a letter from one man who loves a group of people to that group of people. And this is a letter that exists, and we get to be party to it, right? Like, we get to see it. We get to see the beauty of, of Paul's love and longing for the people of Rome and Paul's love for God and Paul's, Paul's desire to be obedient to him. We get to, we get to see this, right? And then not only do we get to see it, but we understand, right, that the Scriptures tell us that, that these things are for us. And so not only do we get to see it, not only do we get to be party to it, but just like I can hear Sarah tell her mom of the plans for the weekend, I get to say, I'm in those plans. I get to go to wherever we're going to go eat dinner or whatever it is. And we get to look at, at Romans 15 and we get to say, these are the plans of Paul. And look how we are caught up in the love that Paul has for the people of God at Rome. Look at how we are caught up for the love Paul has for the church at large. And we see that longing. And so this morning, we're going to take verses 22 to verse 33. And, and something that is a little strange for my personal preaching style is we're not going to walk straight through 22 through 33. We're going to kind of pick out some, some examples, some ways that Paul has modeled some things for us in 
chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. And so as we think about understanding the scriptures and applying the scriptures, we often think of the scriptures in two different ways. We often think of the scriptures as either being descriptive, so telling us something, or prescriptive, telling us how to do something, or to do something, or when to do something, or the ways in which things ought to be done. So we have, we have scriptures that are descriptive that tell us, hey, this is just a reality you should know. And then we have scriptures that say, do this, right? So we have scriptures that say things like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's telling us something, right? It's describing Christ. And then we also have Uh, We have verses that say, put on then, or take off, or do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. And this morning, we find ourselves in a a text of Scripture that does not proclaim to us some some glorious new piece of theology like Paul did in in chapter 8, per se, or in chapter 5, per se, or in chapter 3. Paul is not holding forth on the fact that we are, we are no longer enemies, but that we are sons. He's not holding forth on, on the fact that all things work together for our good. And he's also not, like in chapters 12 or 13 or 14, saying, present your body as a living sacrifice, or don't pass judgment on a brother, or submit to the ruling authorities. We're in a strange situation where Paul literally is telling people he loves in Rome of his plans to visit them. He tells of his plans to go to Jerusalem to to help the saints who are in poverty there. He tells of his plans to go from Jerusalem to Spain and to stop on his way between the two in Rome so that he can see these brothers that he's longed to see and whom he loves. And then he asks for prayers on that journey. And so this morning, I see 11 things that I think Paul models for us, 11 ways Paul models for us godliness in his communication of his plans to the church at Rome. And so if you want a roadmap, there are 11, we'll we'll call them 11 things. The first five of them are beliefs. I think there are five beliefs that are core to what Paul is writing. Five beliefs that I think are, are, are stated either implicitly or explicitly in this text. Five beliefs that Paul has, which feed into three commitments that Paul has and three desires. And so we'll start with the five beliefs that I think I see Paul communicating here, and we'll move into the commitments that he seems to show and then the desires that he has. So five beliefs that Paul models for us in his communication of his plans. First, the first belief that I think Paul models for us is that the global church is made up of loved ones in Christ. So if you look at, at the text, and if we just kind of take some different pieces here and there in this text, we see some language that Paul uses in which he, he models a godly understanding, a godly view of our brothers and sisters, not only in this local congregation, but around the world. And really throughout time, he, vow, he, he models for us a godly view of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world and throughout history. And what does he say? Well, if you look at verse 23, He says, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you. And if you remember, all the way back in chapter 1, which we'll turn to in just a moment, 
When, when Paul is writing this letter, he has not been, he hasn't met these brothers and sisters. He's writing to them a, a letter longing to meet them, longing to see them, but he, he doesn't yet know them. He doesn't yet, he doesn't yet have, have, he hasn't yet experienced them in person, and he's, he's longing for many years to see them. And what does he long for? Well, if you look at verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. He wants to see them. He wants to live life with them for a little while. He wants, he wants to see those whom he calls in verse 30 brothers. Verse 32, he wants to be refreshed in their company. But if you hold your place here and you turn your Bible back to Romans chapter 1, Paul actually opened his letter in this way. After holding forth on these glorious theological truths in verses 1 through 7 about the fact that we are saints in Christ, the fact that, that he has called us holy and made us holy, that, that Paul is, a, is an apostle set apart for the gospel of God by the grace of Jesus Christ and all of these things about Christ and how Christ is descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. He says all of these things. And then in verse eight, he says, first, the first thing I want to tell to you is, is an overflow of this theology. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Why? Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. What does he say? That somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Those are words of someone who has an intense longing. At last? that after all of this waiting and buildup that I might at last succeed at something I've been trying to do, which is to come to you. My, my hope is that I can come and, and, and be with you and be refreshed in your company. In verse 11, he says, for I long to see you. The strength of his desire, he longs to see them, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I long to see you. Why? So that we will be mutually encouraged. Verse 15, he says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul has this, this intense desire, right, to see the believers in, in Rome. And we ask the question, why does he have this desire? Why does he want so badly to see them? And when we get to the bottom of it, the only answer that seems plausible is that he loves them. He loves them deeply. Though he doesn't know them, he loves them. I mean, notice the prayers that he prays. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, the prayer that he is asking God for, when he says, I, I mention you without, without ceasing in my prayers, is that somehow I may just come to see you. And then if we go back to our text for this morning in Romans chapter 15, verse 31, his prayer, he asked them to pray for him. And what is, what is his prayer? He says that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. And so we have a prayer for the church at Rome that he would be able to see them, that he would be able to enjoy their company. We have a prayer for the, the saints in Jerusalem that they would be served well in the gospel by Paul. Paul demonstrates for us the belief that the global church is made up of loved ones. 
And when we remember that and when we think of all that we've read in Romans so far, what we see is a loving letter to a group of people who he cares deeply for. This is not a, just a, a mere theology textbook that's lifeless and dead. It's a love letter to a group of people that he loves. And he's saying, listen, I love you. And therefore, look at this glorious truth of the gospel. I love you. You, you who, who have nothing about you that was lovely. You whose throats were open graves. You whose feet were swift to shed blood. But let me tell you, because I love you, that there is a righteousness that's not based off of your own works, but it's based off of the grace of Christ toward you. He says, I I love you, brothers. In Romans chapter 7, when he's about to address a difficult topic, he calls his audience his brothers. In Romans 8, when he reminds us that we are sons of God, not only sons, but heirs with Christ, he he calls us brothers and sisters to say, "We, we belong to the same one. I love you. Look at this theology. Look at this truth that, that we get to share in together. I love you. Let me, let me lay out for you the glories of this gospel. In Romans 10, when Paul is speaking of his, his own anguish and desiring that the, the Jews might come to faith in Christ, he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's writing this to a group of people whom he loves. And when we look back and we look at all of Romans through the lens of of Paul's love for the people at Rome, what we see is that as we are introduced to these concepts that we love, that we cherish, that we adore, these, these truths that hold us fast in times of difficulty, we're reminded that these are things that we share in with our brothers and sisters all over the world. These are things that we share in with our brothers and sisters across time. And the basis of our love for our brothers and sisters is the fact that the, the, the Christ that we have in common has made us his own. And so we ask the question, how could Paul love people that he had never met like this? Because the gospel had taken root in his own heart. Because the gospel that took root in his heart was taking root in their hearts. And we think about the reality that, that applies to us in this, and, and, it's, and it's more glorious than I can even try to explain today, right? We, we realize that we have more in common with our brothers in China who are worshiping in secret right now than we do with our blood relatives who don't claim the name of Christ. That we have more in common with our sisters in Uganda who are singing in Swahili, a language that we don't know, most of us, than we do with our unbelieving neighbors who our kids go to school with. That we have more in common with the church at Rome who lived 2,000 years ago than we do with our American friends who are apart from Christ. There is nothing else in the world like this. And Paul is writing to this people, and it is assumed that he believes that this church is made up of loved ones. And thus, and this seems like a silly application after thinking about these deep truths, but we understand, right, that, that the churches who meet down the street aren't our competition. That we live here and, and do our, our, our living and our 
loving here at Mercy Hill, but there, there are churches all across our city and all across our state and all across our nation, and all across our world who are, who are loving one another and loving Christ together, and we praise God for that. But I think it even gets even more specific, right? When we think about the way that the global church is made up of loved ones, it means that we get to enjoy Christ together in this body and there's no sense of, of, of competition that I'm trying to be better than the next guy or trying to be more godly than the, the next person, that we get to love one another and live as loved ones in Christ in this body. And so Paul, I think, makes very clear for us, he, he, he makes very clear for us the belief that the global church is made up of loved ones. But I also think he makes very clear a second belief And the second belief is this, that the local church is the outpost of the kingdom of God. The local church is the outpost of the kingdom of God. Paul seems to assume this. We don't see any specific verse where Paul tells us specifically that the local church is what is central in the kingdom of God, but we see it implicitly throughout this text. I want you to notice that there's no centralized location. Paul is going from place to place, and he's taking taking offerings from one place to another place, and he's trying to bless the saints in one place in one way, and the saints in another place in another way. He's going from, from Asia to Jerusalem to, to Rome to Spain. He's going all over the place taking the gospel. There is no central place. The local church is the central place. Notice the absence of, of some kind of centralized location, and notice the centrality of the local church. He says the church, the churches in Achaia and Macedonia have gifts for the church in Jerusalem. And I want to come to you, the church who is at Rome, so that I can be sent out to Spain to take the gospel to people who haven't heard it. This, this idea that the church is central, I think, is, is permeated throughout Paul's writings. Paul doesn't have to be in a certain place for it to be the central place of the church. And why is that? Well, our our central place, the centrality of the church, is is a city that we are longing for, that we are looking forward to, the new Jerusalem to come. And until then, our local churches are these outposts of the kingdom where the local church is what is central. And I think this is important. You might think that this is a side note, but I really do think this is valuable because we are tempted in our day to see other things as the central place of the church. When we want to see the primary work of the kingdom, we, don't, we, we most definitely don't look to a place like the Vatican. And most of you are probably like, well, duh. But we also don't look to denominational offices. We don't look to football stadium crusades. We don't look to nonprofit parachurch organizations. While many of them are good, what is the central outpost of the kingdom of God? It's the local church. And it's the local church that that we see doing the primary work of the kingdom. We see godly saints taking the gospel to their families and to their workplaces and to their neighbors. We see those same saints growing in relationship with one another and growing in grace as they do. We see those saints being sent out as missionaries to places where the gospel has not been named. We see pastors leading ordinary churches to be generous with with their financial resources for for the advancement of the gospel. The local church is central to Paul, and the local church is central to us. The kingdom of God's primary work is is done in the local church. 
And so I want to encourage you and to encourage myself and to remind us that this means that the ordinary work we do in the local church, the ordinary work that we do of coming and fellowshipping and singing together and hearing the Word preached and reading the Word together and fellowshipping and, and sending missionaries out to, to plant new churches and, and sharing the gospel with our neighbors, that ordinary life is the primary place we see the kingdom of God in action. That's it. There's no higher Christian calling than to serve the church and to serve Christ in these ordinary ways that we've been called to. And so we see the global church as the loved ones of God. Number two, we see his belief that the local church is the outpost of the kingdom. Third, we see the belief that the will of God is perfect. If you're looking at Romans chapter 15, we, we get these little hints throughout the text that Paul assumes that God's will is perfect. And he, he models for us a, a trust in the sovereign plans of God. So if you look at verse 22, he says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Now, what we understand when we look at this text is that quite literally, there has been nothing to hinder Paul from coming to Rome. He could have started a journey and gone to them. But what does he say? He says, this is the reason. Well, what is the reason? Verse 20, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see him. And those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. Because Paul understood that he was under compulsion because of his calling from God. 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And so when Paul says he's been hindered from coming to Rome, what he means is, is that the call that God had placed on his life to take the gospel to the, the people who had never heard was, was, was so important in his mind, was so locked into his heart that he could not leave that work to come see these people in Rome that he loved. And it shows an understanding that God's will is perfect. That God's will is perfect. That he understands that his plans may not happen. And what we see from the book of Acts is that in many ways, the plans that he makes here in Romans chapter 15 do not go as he plans. But notice the language he uses to speak of it. If you look in verse 24, he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. I love this language. This, this language shows us, right, that, that Paul is not arrogantly saying, this is what I'm going to do now and this is what I'm going to do next. He's saying, if the Lord wills, right, if, if, if it is God's will, I hope to do this. I hope to come to you. In verse 32, he even says as much, and he says, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy. It reminds me of James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17 that says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
Paul models for us an understanding that the will of God is perfect. And in that perfect will, that in his sovereignty, he is directing the lives of his people. And his understanding that it is, it is only by God's will that he would even get to come to them is a, is a mark of humility. What does it do when we believe that the will of God is perfect? It humbles us. It humbles us to say, who are we to make plans? Who are we to, to say we definitively will do this thing or that thing? It's God who directs our paths. It's God who, who causes us to be able to or to not be able to. Matthew Henry said, ministers' purpose and their friends' purpose concerning them, but God overrules both and orders the journeys, removals, and settlements of his faithful ministers as he pleases. The stars are in the right hand of Christ to shine where he sets them. The gospel does not come by chance to any place, but by the will and counsel of God. Paul demonstrates for us a belief that the will of God is perfect. And may we be people who believe the will of God is perfect, not merely in word, not merely to say it, but to believe it in deed. That when we are experiencing difficulty, as, as Paul has, as when, we're, when we're experiencing difficulty, that we're reminded that everything that comes our way passes through the hands of our loving Father. That when we make plans, we place our hope in Christ, not in those plans. That when we express our desires, we temper them with the will of God. May we be a people who believe that the will of God is perfect and live like it. But Paul, I think number four, shows or proves a belief that the work of the ministry relies on the prayers of the saints. If you look at verse 30, the work of the ministry relies on the prayers of the saints. Paul's pleas for prayer, I think, model for us a keen awareness of the necessity of prayer for the Christian ministry. If you see in verse 30, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Notice what he does. Notice how he prays. He says, I appeal to you, right? I request. My request is to you. Who, who's the request to? My brothers. My brothers, I'm requesting to you by our Lord Jesus Christ, so to remind them this is what we have in common, this is who we are, we are in Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, that we've experienced the love of Christ through the Spirit, so this is what we have in common. I appeal to you, my brothers, who are in Christ, who have the love of the Spirit, to what? To strive with me. To strive together with me. It literally means to struggle in the company with. It makes me think of parenting toddlers, right? You're there, and there's two of you, and you're just struggling together to make sure that this one gets dressed and this one gets fed. There's this, this fight, right, to get together. He says to strive with me, to struggle in company with me, to offer intense prayers with me. Notice this assumes that Paul, he assumes that he'll be praying as well. And he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by what we have in common in Christ, to strive together with me to strive together, to, to offer intense prayers with me, what kind of prayers? Well, obviously, they're prayers to God in verse 30, but verse 31, prayers that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Notice, when Paul says, 
He wants to be delivered from the unbelievers. It literally means to be delivered from those who have refused to be persuaded. We, we, can't, we can't rightly say that Paul is saying this because he doesn't want to die. We understand from other places in scriptures, like, like Philippians, that Paul is, has, has weighed the two, right? And he, he understands it would be far better to be with Christ. It's not that he's saying, let me be delivered from those who have not been persuaded in Judea so that I won't die. What's he saying? What's he, what's he asking for prayers for? He's, he says, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. His ask, his prayer, his, his anguish in his prayers is that he would be able to serve the body of Christ. He models for us a belief that the work of the ministry relies on these prayers of the saints. That I'll be delivered from the unbelievers who are in Judea. And not only that, but that I'll offer acceptable service to the believers in Jerusalem. And then that I'll be able to come to you so that we can be encouraged together. And what we understand as we look at the book of Acts, in Acts 21, Paul does get to Jerusalem and he does get to get to serve the saints there for a moment. And then he is arrested. He's taken into custody for his, his belief in Christ. And I think about Paul's assumption that the first thing that we ought to do when we, when we make our plans and say that by the will of God we'll do this or do that is to ask for prayer, is to ask for the people of God to rally around him in, in, in love and in, in the anguish that he feels to pray. And I think about my own heart and the times where I, I make prayer a, a last resort. And I think that, that I could make a plan that would be more strategic, more powerful than a prayer on my knees to God to help me. And then I think about the times where I assume that my prayers aren't answered because, like Paul, they didn't get answered in the way that I expected them to. But Paul here in, in this passage seems to assume, he seems to believe, he, he seems to model for us a, a, a belief that the work of the ministry relies on the prayers of the saints. And then I think finally our fifth belief is that Paul believes that the saints of God need the God of peace. If you look at verse 33, the saints of God need the God of peace. He says, may the God of peace be with you all Amen. Paul's benediction here, similar to the other benedictions that he's given here in Romans chapter 15, show us the value of God in his peace. So if you think about what he says, he says may, so it's a prayer. He's asking that the God of peace, why is he called the God of peace? Well, it's the same reason he's called the God of other things in other places. So in, in verse 5, when he's called the God of endurance and encouragement, in verse 13, when he's called the God of hope, he's called the God of peace because peace is so linked to him that it is, it is, it is who he is, right? He's the God of peace. Peace is so connected with him, with who he is, and, and that he can literally be called the God of peace. And what does this mean? Well, it means, number one, that we only have peace with God because of God. In Romans 5.1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we have peace with God? Only by the gift of God through Christ. 
And so we have peace with God as, as a gift from him. We only have peace with him because of him. And not only that, we have peace with one another because of him. If you, if you think through all that Paul has said in these chapters that come before this in Romans about Jew and Gentile and how, and how it, it makes no sense that these people could live together in harmony, in, in, in community together, unless the gospel of Christ took root in their hearts. And so he says he's the God of peace. He's the God of peace because we only have peace with him because of him and because we only have peace with one another because of him. And he says, may the God of peace be with you. I think about in the Gospels when the disciples are, are terrified because there's a storm in the boat boat is rocking and water's coming in and and they don't know what to do they don't know how to to get to safety the comfort for them is not is not first that Jesus calms the storm the comfort for them is first that Jesus is in the boat and when we think about the peace of God the God of peace, our comfort in trials. When he says, may the God of peace be with you all, amen, what we understand is that our comfort in trials is not that the trials are gone immediately, but rather that the God of peace is with us in our trials. And so Paul is writing to this church at Rome who, who will face untold difficulties in the years to come. And he says, well, the, the thing I want to leave you with the thing that is, is valuable to you to understand, the thing that I want to, to, to beg God to do for you is to be with you, the God of peace, the one who has is, who is provided the peace that you couldn't provide with himself, the one who has, has given you peace with, with others, that, that there would seem to be no way to have that peace apart from him. That God of peace is with you. And not just with some of you, he says, with you all. Paul believes and models for us a belief that the saints of God need the God of peace. That in our difficulties, some kind of trite response of like, well, you know, it'll just get better. It'll be better in a few days. It'll get easier. It'll get, it'll get less difficult. Sometimes those things aren't true. But the fact that the God of peace is the God of peace is always true. And so our peace in the, in the midst of our trials is possible because he is with us. And so we have these five beliefs, and I think these five beliefs really and very quickly communicate to us three commitments and three desires from Paul in this text, and then we'll, we'll close. The three commitments first is that Paul seems to be committed to, in this passage, first, obedience to the call of God. We go back here in verse 22. He says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Paul's commitment to his calling from God models the kind of obedience that the gospel births in believers in Christ. What, what, is the gospel, what kind of obedience does the, the gospel birth in believers in Christ? It births the kind of obedience that says, I love those people, but there's still work to be done. And so I'm going to stay here and I'm going to do the work. Things like in 1 Corinthians 3.10 where Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. 
My, my goal, my, my life's work is to lay a foundation, to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. And I'm going to be faithful to that call to the Lord for all of my days. And we look at this commitment to be obedient to the call of God, and we say we ought to be people who are, are committed to the call of God on our own lives. Whatever it is, as a church member, as a, an employee, as a husband, a wife, or a child, or a father, a mother, as an elder, as a deacon, as a missionary, as a neighbor, as a friend, we all have calls of God on our lives, and we ought to be people who are committed to being obedient to them. And I would say even, and not just even, but especially in difficulty. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. As Paul says this, he says, I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. How often are we, how often do we look at our circumstances and we find difficulty and we say, well, I mean, I guess this is a sign that God does not have this for me, that this is not God's will for me. And Paul looks at difficulty and he says, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. But each, he says, and there are many adversaries. He's committed to, the, to obedience to the call of God. Second, he is committed to the seasoning of mundane speech with the gospel. I love this. I love this part of this passage. He's committed to the seasoning of mundane speech with the gospel. What I love in, in chapter 15 is that Paul's understanding of the theology that he has laid out for 14 chapters comes to life in the way that he talks to his brothers and sisters. The way that he's talked about theology in these past 14 chapters comes to life in the way that he talks to his brothers and sisters. Paul does not make plans like a pagan. He makes plans like, like a believer in Christ. He says things like, I hope. He asks for prayer. And, and Henry says this. He says, upon this head, his matter is but common and ordinary, appointing a visit to his friends. But the manner of his expression is gracious and savory, very instructive and for our imitation. We should learn by it to speak of our common affairs in the, in the language of Canaan. Even our common discourse should have an air of grace. By this it will appear what country we belong to. I love this. Henry says Paul has an accent. It's a New Jerusalem accent. When he thinks about his plans and when he mentions his plans, his plans are seasoned with the gospel of Christ. He doesn't make plans like a pagan. He makes plans for future ministry. He says, I'm coming from Corinth and I'm going to Jerusalem. And I'm going to Rome and I'm going to Spain by God's will and by his grace. And if you read the book of Acts, you understand that he didn't have the easiest time going from that place to that place to that place. Makes plans for ministry. And not only that, he orders his life with the church in mind. What is he saying? What are his plans? His plans are to come be encouraged and to encourage. His plans are to serve the body at, at Jerusalem, the poor there with, with financial gifts. His plans, his plans include service to the church. And we look at this and we say, let us refuse to speak of our lives like pagans. Let us refuse to make even our most mundane plans something that could be spoken by someone who wasn't in Christ. But I think third, we see a commitment, finally the third commitment to application of the gospel to the life of the church. I love this in verse 27. Because we can miss this if we, if we are just kind of reading through it very quickly. Paul applies the theology that he's given us for the past whole book, basically, 
to a situation in, in the churches that he's dealing with. So if you look at verse 27, for they, so who's they? If you go back up to verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So the church at Macedonia and at Achaia have, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So Paul says, if the spiritual blessings have come to the Gentiles, then the Gentiles can in fact serve the Jews with physical material blessings. He says as much in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13 and 14. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. And he says, basically what he said in chapter 12 and what he said all throughout the the letter that he's written to them, that you are one in Christ and let your abundance serve those who need. Be hospitable to your brothers and sisters, even though you don't know them. Be loving and kind and generous to your brothers and sisters in another place? If the spiritual blessings came to the Gentiles, then the Gentiles can and should, he says, in this application of the gospel that he's already written on, should be willing to give materially. And I love this because it reminds us, and this this belief and this commitment from Paul reminds us that the, the-, the theology presented here is, is, again, it's not dead. It's worked out in the daily life of the body. That the truth of God, when we rightly understand it, leads to worship God, which leads to right practice. That orthodoxy, that, that right doctrine feeds orthopraxy, right, right doing and right practice. That, that when we look at the truths of the Scriptures and the glories of the Gospel and we love Christ, we, we respond in worship and then we respond in Obedience, in this case, generosity to, to our brothers and sisters. And so Paul is committed to applying the gospel to the life of the church. And then finally, we see, I think, three desires that Paul has that we can emulate in our own lives and we'll be closed. The first desire that I think Paul proves to us here is that he desires that the gospel go to the nations. Verse 22, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. Why has he been hindered from coming to them? He's been hindered from coming to them because he's modeling the godly desire to see the gospel go to all the nations, to to see places where Christ has not been named, named the name of Christ. Why? Well, I think we talked about this a ton last week, but just to hit a couple of high points, we, we, we believe this, right? This is a good and godly desire to see the gospel come to the nations because it's for God's glory. Right, Habakkuk 2.4 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we say, yes, we want that to happen. Right? We want the, the people of the world to know the goodness and glory of God. And so we, we, we go with the gospel, armed with the truth, and we preach the gospel to them. And not only that, we, we go because as, as we believe and as we've, we've said throughout this study in the book of Romans is that we have brothers and sisters out there. There are those out there who, are, who are, have been predestined and who have been who have been loved beforehand and we say we want to go and share the gospel with them so that they'll come in for God's glory and because we have brothers and sisters out there 
We see his desire to take the gospel to the nations, but I also think we see in this text his desire to be of service to the saints. Paul models the godly desire to serve the saints both near and far. We see two really major types of service here. He wants to serve the poor among the saints. So in verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So a monetary uh, contribution. We see him actually tell the church at Galatia and the church at Corinth to do the same thing. In Galatians 2, 9 and 10, it says, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. 1 Corinthians 16, now concerning the collection of the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. He, he makes plans, plans that the poor among the saints would be served. But he also plans to serve the saints in general. Look at verse 29. He says, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. What's his desire? Paul's desire is to come to Rome and to bring with him the mutual encouragement that he, he longed for in Romans chapter 1. That I come with the Spirit of Christ in me and you have the Spirit of Christ in you and we can be mutually encouraged together. That when I come, I'll come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. That the, the gospel that we have believed, that the spirit that's taken root in our heart, that these, these truths that we share, they'll be an encouragement to one another. That I'll come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Which, as we even think about it, is, is, is far greater than any material blessing. Right? The material blessing is a peace. And he says, I want to come and I want to bless you and you bless me, and we be mutually encouraged. We also see in this service in verse 31, that what does he desire? He desires that this service would be acceptable to the saints at Jerusalem. He asks the question, what, kind of, what does this kind of service reveal? When Paul says, I want, I want to serve the church, I want to come to you in the fullness of the blessing of Christ, I want to, I want to serve you in a way that's acceptable to you, it, makes me, uh, it really makes me think of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is writing and he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Here's the question, how is this possible? What kind of love is this that would say, I'm going to give according to my means and beyond my means, and then I'm going to call it a favor that I get to serve the saints? What kind of love is this? It's the love that's birthed in us by Christ. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 8, verse 8, to say, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Our generosity is a sign that the gospel has taken root in our hearts, and Paul has this desire to see the saints served. 
and it's our desire as well to serve one another. And we, we talked about this in the, in the weeks past, right? This desire that we have to serve one another, it doesn't have to be this glorious, super thought out thing. It can be to just offer to help. It can be to offer a prayer. It can be to ask, what is it that I can pray for? It can be to labor together, as Paul asked here, to labor together, to strive together in prayer for, for a certain thing. It can be to, to literally just sit with one another, to listen to the difficulty, to, to pray through a difficulty. It can be to encourage one another with the truths of the Scriptures, to text one another the, the glories of the Gospel to call one another and to say, this is, this is what the Lord has taught me. To, to call one another and say, I see God working in your life in this way, and I just wanted to praise him for that and tell you. Our desire to serve can prove itself in a myriad ways. But Paul, I think, models here for us a desire to serve the body, a desire to serve in generosity that, that is, is not... Is not worried about what is in it for ourselves, but is worried about and is, is worried with what we can do for our brothers and sisters. And I think finally, the third desire, the final desire that we see Paul have, and I think it's the most important one, is that we see Paul's desire to fellowship with the saints. In verse 24, and I love this language, he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. This, this phrase, enjoyed your company, literally means once I have been filled up, once I've been satisfied. He says, I hope to go to Spain by way of you, and when I stop, I, I hope to be supported by you financially, but, but I hope to be filled up, to be satisfied by you, to be satisfied in fellowship with you. And we know what this is like, church. Have you ever sat around the table with your brothers and sisters after a meal and, and you talk about the goodness of God and the glories of the gospel and you look around and you are filled up, you're satisfied, you're reminded of, of what we have in common and what we have ahead of us, that, that we are all marching to the New Jerusalem together and that we, we as a, a body have love for one another, another and we've experienced the love of Christ and we are filled, we're satisfied. We're satisfied in a way that, that our conversations at, at the baseball field or, or at work or in other places can't satisfy us. He says, I'm going to go on, but first I want to be filled, to be satisfied by your company. And he says in verse 32, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy. Can you imagine the language he used in chapter 1 of, of at last. Can you imagine that moment when, when Paul sees the brothers and sisters in Rome with joy? And he says, these are the people that I've loved and I've longed for, that I've cared about from miles away, people that I've, that I've had anguish over, people who have prayed for me, people who I've prayed for. And he says, I want to come to you and see you with joy. And then I think the most powerful, powerful picture is in verse 32. He says, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. This, this phrase, refreshed in your company, literally means to rest with. To lie down and rest with. To, 
We, we miss this because we eat at tables that are often uncomfortable and wooden chairs, and we have to lean forward so our backs don't hurt. But to think of the picture, right, of, of reclining together at table, of sitting together, of, of resting with one another. Paul says, this is my desire. This is my desire, is that I would, I would have fellowship with you, that I would be able to rest together with you. Right, That idea, again, there's no competition. We're not coming together to, to prove who's more godly and who has a better theological mind and, and who can come up with the best ways to say things. We're coming together and we're resting together in the gospel of Christ that we have held on to in many ways for dear life. And we come together and we rest together in Christ. Paul says, this is what I long for. I've written you all of these things so that we can glory in them together. I've written you all of these things so that when I come, we get to, we get to sit in joy and lay in joy together and, and be reminded of the fact that we have a righteousness that's provided to us in Christ, that we, that we have been given new life, that we've been adopted into a new family, that we have, we've been given uh, the ability to be an heir with Christ, that nothing that comes our way will ever separate us from the love of God. And we get to come together and we get to rest with one another, believing these things. He said, this is what I long for. What sweet fellowship exists between saints, even saints we've never met. I was reminded even this week at work, a brother came up to me and he said, I found out that you're a pastor from your Twitter. I was stalking it. And he said, can we, can we pray together? I said, yes. I had no idea, but praise the Lord, right? You're a brother here in this place, someone who I have so much more in common with than I ever knew, than I ever believed. What sweet fellowship that we have. We're filled when we are together. We share in the joy of Christ together. We rest in Christ when we are together. And we have the ability to do that here. And we will merely do that until we rest together face-to-face with Christ forever in glory. Paul finally made it to Rome. And he made it to Rome in chains, and he lived there for two years. And I can only imagine, I can only imagine the, the resting that was done together. Acts says in Acts 28, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul went to Rome and changed. He didn't go the way that I assume he assumed he would go. But he went, and what did he get to do? He got to enjoy their company. He got to be filled and satisfied. He got to go to them with joy. He got to be refreshed in their company. He got to rest with them. In church, in Christ, we get to do the same thing. And we look back on this, this book of Romans, and this, this book of Romans has not been here that we might be puffed up. It's not been here that we, might, that we might make our knowledge bigger and better. It's not been here that we might, we might look at it and, and arrogantly say, look at all of the ways that our theology is perfect. It's been here that we might glory in the gospel that we could have never imagined, and we might glory in it together. And as much as Paul is a model for us in this, I want to close by just reminding us that Christ is a better one. 
that Christ indeed has called us loved ones. That he said in John 17 that, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He's called us loved ones. Not only has he called us loved ones, he's commissioned a people to take the gospel to the far-reaching places, to make disciples and to preach the gospel, not organized in one place, but throughout the world. He trusted perfectly in the will of the Father, and he never wavered. In Luke 22, he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He prayed for his people. He sent the helper to us. He offered peace to his people. He says in John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We think that we can be obedient to the call of God. He is the obedient son. He obeyed his father perfectly, even to the point of death on a cross. His words are always seasoned with salt. He is the best applier of the scriptures, for he is the word of God. He commissioned his church to take the gospel to the nations. He became a servant, being born in the likeness of men, that the king of the universe became a servant to us. He caused us to have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. Christ is better in all of these. And we get to, even with the truths that we've seen in the book of Romans, we get to enjoy Him together. And my prayer is that we will. Let's pray.